0: So if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 in your Bibles, and we have done it. We have made it to the final sermon in the book of 1 Peter, and I know it took hardly any time at all, but I digress. So while you're turning there, we'll look at the last uh, three verses of the book today. Uh, first, I want to ask you a question, and as usual with the start of my sermons, this is a very important and a serious question. What do Oreos, ice cream sandwiches, and tacos all have? In common, Well, first and most importantly, they're delicious. That's the obvious answer, right? But they're also constructed in the same general way. The outer shell holds together the delicious filling inside. And without the binding quality of those outer layers, the filling in the middle would be a disastrous mess. But even so, some are willing to eat only the filling and to ignore those outer layers. Monsters, I call them. But few, if any, would ever choose to eat the taco shells and leave the fillings. Hardly anyone will throw out the Oreo filling and eat only the outer cookie. So you can separate a taco from its filling or the cookie from the marshmallow or ice cream in the middle, but you shouldn't. I firmly believe that. But the sad thing is that people often treat the epistles of the New Testament like they are a taco or an Oreo. Many quickly skip by the introductions and the conclusions of letters without noticing their purpose and without noticing their beauty. They just want to get to the filling. But what do you call an ice cream sandwich without the cookie? Answer, 10 minutes of cleaning. Likewise, a letter without an introduction or conclusion becomes a mess. The introduction of 1 Peter doesn't just give information about the author and audience, but also gives important themes and really the entire purpose of the letter. Furthermore, without the intro and the conclusion of 1 Peter, you would be missing out on Peter's blessings of God's grace and peace on you twice. Twice you would miss out on that. So at the most basic level, the purpose of 1 Peter is to bless you with the grace and peace of God because of your union with Christ, so as we conclude the book by looking at the last three verses, we are going to see that same. We're going to see that same purpose restated and re-emphasized. And so, the proposition for the final verses is that because you are in Christ, you must stand firm in Him. So, with that, let's read First Peter chapter five, verses twelve through fourteen. Since we are finishing up the book of 1 Peter, we are going to go back and recap some of the major themes and portions of the book. So let's walk through the major elements of the book in the first point. That's what we're going to do. And then we'll connect them with Peter's closing verses in the second point. So point one is just a theme recap of the entire book. So as I said before, the purpose of this point is to revisit some of the major themes that Peter is wrapping up from this book. In chapter 5, verse 12, Peter says that he wrote briefly to you. And compared to something like the book of Isaiah or one of the Gospels, this is a short book. But it's still five chapters chock full of theology. And so much so, in fact, that preaching through this brief book only took 21 sermons. I know, we're on a roll here. So while we definitely could have moved faster, there's simply too much depth not to slow down and smell the roses. We need to walk slowly enough to appreciate the beauty of the book in all its facets. So now, take your Bibles and let's turn back to chapter 1, and we're going to walk through some verses and revisit some themes. So chapter 1, and we'll look at the introduction in verses 1 and 2. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so there in that introduction we see the author, who is Peter, We see who Peter is, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We also see his audience, those who are elect exiles. And if you remember when we walked through that, we talked about how it was a bit of a contradiction. How can you be chosen and yet rejected? Well, we're rejected in this world because we are chosen by God. We are set apart according to his foreknowledge and plan. It's not an accident that we are exiles and sojourners in this world. But rather, according to God's foreknowledge, for the purpose of our sanctification, we wonder for this time on earth while we wait for our heavenly reward. But then the end of verse two, you also see the purpose, really, for the entirety of the book. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That is Peter's purpose, to see grace and peace come to you in abundance from the Spirit. Now look at verses three and four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be re- to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. To so you see the cause, God's great mercy leading to our rebirth in Christ. And because of that rebirth, we also receive this Inheritance. It's a future inheritance that we're waiting on, and yet we receive some of it now. But it is something that is eternal, something that will continue on forever. And because of our rebirth through God's great mercy, we're waiting on that. So we talk about these great things, these great future promises. Now go to verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, in those great promises. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have those great promises, but now we walk in this world and there's suffering and there's still sin that lingers. And yet God is using that to sanctify us and prepare us for that eternal weight of glory, which we're waiting on. Go to verses 13 through 15 next. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So the implication is if you have this grand future promise... If you have been reborn and called by God, then you must live a certain way. You have been called into grace, therefore you must live according to grace. And as you rest in Christ's grace, that will lead you to obedience and holiness and following his commands. It's not by your effort alone. It is by resting in the grace and peace of God that that will be accomplished. Next, flip over to chapter 2. We'll look at verses 4 and 5. So as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ is that cornerstone of the spiritual temple on which every one of us is being built up together as the church. The place where God has chosen to set his spirit in us. The place where God has chosen to indwell his people. And that is what it means that we're being built up into this spiritual house as the church. We're being trained to rest in grace as he builds us up as the church. And then going closely along with that, skip down to verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Really, we're just talking about our grand identity in Christ as the church there. Who we are, who we have been called together to be. Being united to Christ makes us into this special chosen people of God. And the purpose of doing all that is that we might proclaim the excellencies of God in all we do. He calls us for that purpose specifically. And I love the two contrasts at the end of verse 10 as well. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And as we saw earlier in chapter 1, it is God's great mercy that you have received. Moving on into the next theme, go to chapter 2, verse 13. Really, 2 and then through the first part of chapter 3 is about submitting to authority. Submitting to those God has placed and set up. And so we'll just read 13 through 14 to summarize those sections. Be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So whether it be in our submission to the government, whether it be servants submitting to masters, whether it be wives being subject to their husbands in chapter 3, the idea is that God sets up authority and he gives those people authority. And therefore, we are to walk humbly um, following those authorities in order to honor God. That is why we obey when we are called to obey So unless they call us to sin, that is our call is to submit to authority. So now, skip forward into chapter 4. So chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So we're to we're to have this resolute focus together as a church. This resolute focus to pursue holiness and gracious living and to continue loving one another. And what's the reason for that? Why do we need to pursue that? Because the end of all things is at hand. We're waiting on glory. It's on the way. But for now, live holy lives and love one another. Next, go to verse 14 of chapter 4. This is going back to kind of the idea of suffering. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So don't suffer for your own mistakes. Don't suffer for making dumb decisions or being rebellious. Suffer for the name of Christ alone. Because by doing so, you are blessed by God. And verse 19 gives a great hope of promise there. Therefore, let those who suffer suffer According to God's will, that means suffer unjustly for following Christ, they will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So as we suffer, we turn our suffering over, we entrust ourselves to God who is sovereign over every situation. All right, let's look at the first few verses of chapter 5 and then we'll move on to the second point. So verses 1 and 2, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Then go to verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so Christ, the chief shepherd, has set up under shepherds to watch over the church, to guide the church. But all the while, they are to remember, as the flock is to remember, that Christ is the chief shepherd who reigns over his church. And so whether it's suffering or trials or persecution, we need to remember who the chief shepherd is, even as we call our leaders to be faithful shepherds. All right, we'll look at one more at the end of uh In verse 10 of chapter 5. And again, so much of 1 Peter is about the subject of suffering. But this is the hope. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So yes, you suffer now, but God will confirm you, strengthen you, and carry you through that suffering if you cling to his grace. And that's the promise there. So keep all these themes in mind now as we turn to the conclusion of the book and looking at the last three verses of chapter 5. So the second point, true grace and peace. So the closing of this letter really follows the the normal format for New Testament letters. Peter sends greetings, he makes a few final remarks, and he closes with a uh, benediction or a blessing. So first in verse 12, Peter says that he wrote to his audience by Sylvanus. Now everyone agrees just about that Sylvanus is another name for Silas, who I'm sure you've also heard of. Silas appears in Acts 15, 16, and 18, and he typically was working with Paul. And more than likely, Sylvanus was known by many because of his close proximity to at least two different apostles. So the only question really here is, how did Peter write By Silas. What does that mean? Well, some take that to mean that Sylvanus helped author the book or operated as Peter's amanuensis. And an amanuensis is basically a scribe that writes down what the author tells him to write. So some other New Testament books list more than one author. We're also pretty sure that Peter, or excuse me, that Paul used an amanuensis on more than one occasion. 2 Thessalonians 1.1 says that it was written not just by Paul, but by Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. So I say that to say it isn't wrong to think that Silas may have co-authored or been the one writing down Paul's words. And Sylvanus was clearly capable of helping Peter write this book. But it is unlikely that Peter would have failed to mention Sylvanus as a co-author in verse 1 of chapter 1. So the language of writing by someone was a common phrase in the New Testament era to describe the carrier of the letter. And this is the most likely answer, that Sylvanus delivered the letters to the churches. And the carrier had a very important role, even helping clear up or interpret anything that was unclear in the letter. So don't picture just a postal service worker who just delivers it and leaves. Having been with Peter... Sylvanus would have known the author's intent and how to answer any questions from the recipient churches. And I think that's why Peter also declared Sylvanus to be a faithful brother. He is capable. He is trustworthy. He is faithfully ready to deliver and explain this letter on Peter's behalf. So really, he bore Peter's authority to carry this letter to the various churches. Sylvanus was sanctioned to carry and handle the word of God in the churches. So that's Silas's role in regards to this letter. Next in the closing statements, Peter gives the purpose of the entire letter. His divinely given task was to write a letter that would exhort and declare. And the expressly given purpose of this book is to promote a divinely given message to the church. He wasn't writing five helpful tips for church life. He wasn't giving his top 3 outreach programs. He was authoritatively handing down a message. So what's the message? Peter exhorts and declares that this is the true grace of God. Next question. What is this? What is this true grace of God? Well, it has to refer to the grace of God. That much we can figure out, right? Back in first, or back in chapter one, verse two, Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That is a grace and peace benediction. And a benediction at the most basic level is wishing someone well. Bene means good, diction means speaking. So benediction is good speaking in a way. In scripture and in the church, a benediction is even more than that. It is a holy blessing given by ministers of God on the people of God. It is something even commanded in the word to be done. And some of you all may know this, but one of my favorite benedictions is from number six. And go ahead and turn back there if you can. So number six, starting verse 22, and we'll read that in just a moment. I'll go ahead and tell you before I read it that one reason that this is a favorite of mine is because it gives a full explanation and a command about blessing, about why it is we give a benediction in a worship service. So, Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Notice that God's ministers are commanded to pronounce the blessing of God on his people. It is a statute of the Lord that the shepherds of the church must pronounce the blessing of God's favor on Christians. The minister's duty is to bless those who are trusting in Christ. So it should come as no surprise to you that the author of a New Testament epistle would do the same that he would follow that same pattern of blessing the people he is speaking to. Notice also that Peter started with the grace and peace blessing at the beginning of the book. And now what does he do? He also ends with one. So we see a grace blessing in verse 12 and a peace benediction in verse 14. So the book starts and ends with a blessing of grace and peace from God. And all those blessings are not mere empty words. They are effectual and they are active. Jesus is continually blessing his people and giving them peace. God is always blessing you. How is God blessing you? Well, Peter doesn't just throw words around pointlessly. The question you need to ask is how and where do these blessings come into being in the lives of believers? So remember that Oreo and taco illustration. Nobody wants to eat the taco shell by itself. The point of that shell is to hold in all the meat, cheese, and toppings. Similarly, the opening and closing benediction in a letter is a shell that explains and organizes the meat in between. So the way in which you are to receive the grace of God in this letter is by receiving all the truths contained in this book. So when Peter says that this is the true grace of God in verse 12, he is referring to the entirety of the truths of 1 Peter. on Wednesday night, we looked at the first few verses of Revelation. And Revelation 1-3 gives a promise of blessing as well. There the Apostle John says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. So the promise for 1 Peter, or any other book of the Bible for that matter, is really the same. As you read, as you meditate on and obey the word of the Lord, he pours out his blessing on you. Therefore, this book is the true grace of God, because the Lord of the universe is speaking words of life to you. The primary way in which the blessings of God will come to you in this book is by reading and meditating on the words of first Peter. So as you think about how to suffer for the name of Christ, God will bless you with stronger faith. As you seek to honor the Lord in your marriage, his peace is resting upon your marriage. When you humble yourself before the Lord and one another, the church and the family unit will thrive under God's grace. So often we separate the commands of God and his blessings. But his commands are always for your good. They are blessings in and of themselves. So as we seek to know and understand his commands better, we are made more like Christ, who is the source of every grace. That's why Peter commands you to stand firm in that grace. We are to treat God's grace as a safe shelter and we are to run to it for help and for rescue. We are to receive the truths as a treasure surpassing anything else that this world can offer us. And so when persecution or trials come, we are to take our stand on the hill of grace. For there, Jesus has commanded a blessing on his saints forevermore. And it is upon that hill of grace that we build as individuals, families, and the church. You must individually and corporately cling to the grace of God. We're too quick to become overly focused on ourselves. It's about my faith. It's about my spiritual journey. And don't get me wrong, you must individually trust in and love Christ. But you are saved into the fellowship of the church. We are together the church, not individually. But even then we can lose sight of the bigger picture because we are not the entirety of the capital C In this room, capital C Church, that is. We aren't even the entirety of believers in Crosnor. Christ's church is spread across the globe and throughout time. But it is altogether the bride of Christ. And we can see Peter's heart for the communion of saints in verses 13 and the first part of 14. He writes that she who is at Babylon, who is also chosen, sends you greetings. Now, the actual city of Babylon at this point in history was in ruins. There was no one living there. There was no one to send greetings, especially not a woman well-known enough to just merely reference her and leave it at that. Rather, this is talking about the church in Rome. In the Old Testament, Babylon became symbolic for the headquarters of the evil nations of the world. So, Peter, carrying on that Old Testament exilic imagery of the church being scattered across the evil nations... He referred to that by calling Rome Babylon. It was the center of the known world and in many ways it was the headquarters of Satan and his efforts on this earth. And yet even there, God called and set apart a church in Rome in the heart of enemy territory. So the Roman church and the ones he wrote to were all members of the larger church of Christ. And isn't it interesting in a book which talks so much about suffering and persecution that Peter wrote while in Rome. He wrote from the place most likely to persecute the church. He himself would later be martyred in the city of Rome. Back in verse 9, Peter encouraged those suffering by telling them that their suffering was not unique, that other believers throughout the world were also suffering in similar ways. And how fitting a statement to make as you write from the center of the nations. And yet he didn't focus on the evil world or the present evil powers. He focuses instead on the fellowship of the church of God. So in addition to sending greetings from his host church, he specifically names Mark, the author of the gospel, according to Mark. And Peter calls him his son. Now, there's no reason to think that they were actually physically related. Mark was not Peter's physical son. In fact, Peter's probably... Uh, Excuse me, Mark was Peter's spiritual son. He wasn't his physical son. He was calling him his spiritual son. And Peter's probably the primary apostle who assisted Mark in writing that gospel. They were family through and through because of faith in Christ. Now next, Peter says to greet one another with a kiss of love. Now we as 21st century Americans cringe a little bit at this command. And yes, technically, this is a command in the Greek. But don't worry, I don't think that means we have to give each other a holy kiss every time we see each other. That kind of greeting was a common greeting for close friends and especially family in the ancient Near East. And in a lot of parts of the Middle East, it remains a normal greeting. The point is this, that the world, and des- the world despised and hated, even persecuted these early Christians. They lived in a hostile world. But when they came to gather with the saints for worship, they greeted one another in love as family. The command to greet one another with love stands. The form by which we do that does not necessarily have to follow the pattern of the holy kiss. A warm handshake and a hug are probably the closest forms that we have in our culture. But the deeper underlying point is that our unity and love for one another is essential for the health of the church. This world will malign and ostracize us for what we believe and for how we worship. But when you walk in through these doors to worship together with the other saints, you are with your spiritual family. Peter loved Mark dearly enough to call him his own son. Do you love the saints around you enough to call them your spiritual brothers And sisters. You're one body, so you should. Well, Peter has already pronounced a grace benediction in verse 12. Now, in verse 14, his final words are a peace benediction on the saints. The blessing is for those who are in Christ. Jesus has united himself to all believers, he has taken us and united us to himself. And it is your union with Jesus that defines who you are as a saint. You bear his name upon you and you have his spirit within you. So this blessing of peace is not for the world. It does not fall on the evil leaders and nations around you. It doesn't even fall on you alone as an individual. It is reserved for all of God's church together. For everyone who is redeemed by the blood of Jesus, God gives his peace. But once again, remember that this promise is not empty words or some general sort of calm in life. It is a summary of the entire book's teaching on peace. Peace is not just being relaxed or calm. Peace is resting in the promises of God. Because of your hope, you know that the Lord will bring about those promises. So peace is really resting in Christ. Persecution, suffering, and trials, they will all come to the saints over time. But the blessing of peace means that in those trials, you can rest securely in the arms of the chief shepherd. You can trust that he is leading you where you need to go. And so in all unjust suffering, God will give you peace. But Peter's prayer is also that as you seek to live holy lives, you might actually live in peace and not bear outright physical persecution or suffering. It's not wrong to seek to live peaceful and quiet lives in this earth. But even when suffering appears, and it seems as though everything has gone wrong, you can have peace with God. The blood of Jesus pleads your innocence, and therefore you have the pleasure of your Father resting upon you. Even in the most brutal of trials. His countenance towards you, his love for you, that will never change for those who are in Christ. You will walk in glory, where an unfading and an imperishable inheritance awaits you. So for now, cling to Christ. He's your head, he is your master, he is your savior, and he is your friend. That is really what it means to be in Christ. You, believer, are a recipient of the endless grace of God. Therefore, stand firm in it. And peace to all those who are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, it is indeed a a strange mystery that we have your peace, that you would give us peace, that you would bestow that grace upon us, that even in this fallen world where dangers are all about, sickness and trials are all about, And yet, through Christ, you give us peace. You give us the hope of glory and eternity. You give us the hope that everything you do is for our good. So, Lord, help us to rest in that. Help us to trust in the blood of Christ, because that alone will avail for our salvation. Lord, help us to cling to him. We ask it in his name.